0: This is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. We're going to take a look at some stories that you may have missed and the latest news in climate change and the environment. Joining us now is NHPR's Mara Hoplamazian and the New Hampshire Bulletin's Hallie Barndoller. Welcome to both of you. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Rick. Summer is near and tourists are already flooding the Granite State. Mara, what what kind of turnout does the state expect this summer? Summers are our biggest season for tourism, after all.
1: Yeah, that's right. So summer is the big season. Um, This year, officials are expecting about 4.3 million visitors. That's a slight increase um, compared to 2022, which was the peak so far for tourist spending in New Hampshire. So it'll be a big summer. State officials say they're expecting a particular jump in international visitors as pandemic restrictions sort of fade from view, and people have started to make more international travel plans.
0: Now, the Mount Washington Valley and Franconia Notch are, of course, popular destinations. Parking at some trailheads can be a nightmare. We've seen this. It sounds like the state is encouraging folks from from out of state to, to give other parts of New Hampshire a try.
1: Yes. So the Department of Business and Economic Affairs told me one of their big challenges is dispersion or getting people to look off the beaten path for summer fun. That department has been working with regional organizations to promote a wider variety of destinations to travelers, and they're also looking into some technology that could help in the future, like a system that could show when trailhead parking lots are busy and direct people to other places nearby.
0: Now, the season's extending into September as New England summers are getting getting warmer, Mara. What do temperature predictions look like for the summer?
1: Yeah. So it looks like it'll be a hot one. Um, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says New England should be expecting a warmer summer than usual with a 50 per- fifty to 60 percent chance of above average temperatures. Um, and, you know, that fits with what climate scientists say granite staters should expect as the climate changes. New Hampshire's getting warmer. Um, extreme heat is becoming more common. Like, for example, the number of days each year with a heat index above 90 degrees has doubled since 1980 from eight days to 15 days, according to state health officials. And that kind of extreme heat is expected to keep rising if the world continues to depend on the fossil fuels that cause climate change.
0: And and, and Mara, when it's hot out, electricity demand is higher. With everyone running air conditioners, we've had some news this morning about some predictions here about the, the electric grid. What should we expect from New England's grid this summer?
1: Right. So the organization that runs New England's grid called ISO New England um, put out a statement yesterday saying the system should hold up fine under typical weather conditions. Um, but they said, you know, if we see more extreme heat, like an extended heat wave, they could take certain actions like asking residents and businesses to voluntarily conserve energy. Um, they could also import power from neighboring regions or draw on power reserves. And in a severe event, the grid operator could call for controlled power outages. Um They also said as climate change makes weather more unpredictable, system operators may need to resort to those kinds of actions more often. But overall, they said there should be enough supply to meet the demand they're expecting this summer. And energy efficiency measures and things like rooftop solar panels are expected to help balance out the grid.
0: Hadley, let's turn to you. We we frequently cover the effects of of, um, PFAS contamination. That's a class of forever chemicals that are present in soil, water, and air throughout the state. And I know you've been reporting on another class of forever forever chemicals, PCBs. Now, where did they come from and, and how are they present here in New Hampshire?
2: So PCBs are sometimes referred to as the original forever chemical um, as they got a lot of attention between the 1980s and early 2000s, but urgency around them seemed to drop off as other things um, started competing for the public's attention. Um, But in short, PCBs are a class of more than 200 chemicals that were used in hundreds of industrial and commercial applications, mostly between the 1920s and 1970s, um, and since contamination has been found all over the world. Um, They were used in electrical equipment, oils, lubricants, and, and plasticizers in paints and plastics. And once their toxicity started to become more widely realized, the U.S. government actually banned their manufacturing in 1979. So So that was a long time ago. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was
0: going to ask you, what's the state been doing since then?
2: Yeah, so, you know, that was a long time ago, right? You know, but these chemicals are so persistent, they are still all over New Hampshire's environment today. Um, And yet officials I interviewed for this story said the state doesn't have an active PCB monitoring program in place, um, partially because there are so many environmental contaminants competing for funding and attention today. A lot of PCB work is typically done on Superfund sites, you know, which are largely supported by federal dollars. But otherwise, there isn't a lot of money lying around to further probe PCB contamination in our lakes and rivers, for example, um, where there have been some really surprising and concerning results, um, particularly at Squam Lake.
0: But the state did receive millions of dollars from a settlement with um, Monsanto surrounding PCB contamination. Where did that money go?
2: Yeah, so in 2020, the state sued the Monsanto company for its manufacturing of PCB chemicals and last year um, received uh, a settlement of $25 million. After attorney fees and such, uh, $20 million was left. And because the legislature had not previously decided it wanted this money to go to a certain place, all of the money was ultimately absorbed by the state's general fund and didn't go towards PCB remediation efforts at all. Um, this session, Governor Sununu did propose $6 million to go towards a new PCB assistance fund, hoping to use some of this money in the general fund. But lawmakers cut much of that during the budgeting process.
0: And, and as you said, we, we really don't know the extent of contamination in, in our waterways and soil across the state.
2: Absolutely. Like I said, a lot of research has been done on, you know, very um, known contaminated sites like Superfund sites, Um, but there is widespread PCB contamination um, on inland, inland bodies of water, and we don't have a lot of resources to probe that.
0: It's Morning Edition on NHPR. We're recapping the week's news with NHPR's Mara Hoplamazian and the New Hampshire Bulletin's Hadley Barndoller. If you've got questions about what's going on in the state, you can email us at voices at nhpr.org. Let's get back to the news and climate change in the environment. Mara, you've been looking into climate uh, migration. Now, New England could be considered a safe haven in the future for people fleeing disastrous effects of climate change in other parts of the country. Why could parts of New England end up being safer than other parts of the U.S.?
1: Well... Ecologically, our region is a little bit more protected than others from some of the worst effects of climate change. So scientists say the best niche in terms of the right temperatures and amount of precipitation for humans is starting to move northward as much of the south becomes too hot and too dry. Um, And parts of New England are also protected from sea level rise more than places on the coasts and more protected from large wildfires than places out west.
0: And I'm sure this is an issue that's very real for climate scientists and other people following the effects of climate change more closely. But I can also imagine people listening may say this is a problem far off in the future. Is anyone really keeping track of where the climate migration is actually happening now?
1: Yeah, so sort of. You know, a professor I spoke to, Dr. Linda Shy, who works at Cornell and studies climate migration, said experts are still working to get a better sense of the numbers of people moving right now and the numbers of people projected to move in the future due to climate change. Um, but, you know, people move for lots of reasons. And she says those numbers aren't coming soon and they might not ever really be predictive. Like we might not be able to use them to predict how many people are going to come. We can look at the number of people displaced by disasters, though. You know, that could provide a picture of one kind of person who might migrate due to climate change. In the U.S. in 2017, that was 1.7 million people displaced by disasters.
0: And how should towns or cities prepare for, for any of this migration?
1: Yeah, you know, I've talked to a few town and city planners who are already sort of thinking about climate migration. The city of Keene held a conference a couple of weeks ago for planners to get together and discuss what needs to happen to sort of make room for people. Um, You know, experts say people move for a lot of reasons. Right now, people in the U.S. have tended to move to places that have more available housing, um, you know, more available jobs, family networks, um, even if those places are less resilient to climate change. So, you know, places like Orlando or Houston. Um, And it seems like, Communities have a choice about whether they want to attract climate migrants, um, but making room for folks would take investments in infrastructure like water and sewer networks um, and housing in particular.
0: Now, New Hampshire uh, officials are grappling with how to reduce waste that goes into the state's landfills and incinerators. I want to turn to you, Hadley. Can you tell us more about how this has become a major issue around here?
2: Sure. So solid waste has really become a front and center issue in New Hampshire in recent years, particularly in relation to a proposal in the north country to build a new landfill, which is probably, you know, a lot of the headlines that, that folks have seen. Um, but around the same time, it came to light that the state hadn't updated its solid, solid waste management plan in nearly 20 years. Um, and the goals it made back then weren't even close to being met today. So this kind of started this renewed sense of of urgency. And meanwhile, new data was coming out showing that, Nearly fifty percent of waste disposed of in New Hampshire comes from out of state. So that started this whole conversation about the burden other states waste is is putting on the granite state's infrastructure
0: and how does New Hampshire's waste management compare to other states?
2: Um, The chairwoman of the State Solid Waste Working Group recently said um, at a conference that New Hampshire is really behind neighboring states in terms of managing its waste and and planning for the future. States like Massachusetts and Vermont have instituted waste bans on certain products and materials as part of efforts to decrease the amount of landfilling they're doing. Maine last year was able to close a loophole in state law that had allowed out-of-state construction and demolition debris to be continually disposed of in a state-owned landfill. And meanwhile, stakeholders have pointed out that New Hampshire is spending much of its time debating requirements for new landfills, um, like appropriate setbacks from bodies of water and things of that nature.
0: Yeah. So New Hampshire is really far behind in, in planning, but how are state officials trying to catch up? What are, what are they doing?
2: The head of waste management at the Department of Environmental Services recently said he believes the next few years will be a watershed time um, for solid waste work in New Hampshire. The state established new diversion goals for waste going into landfills, um, looking at a 25 percent weight reduction by 2030 and 45 percent by 2050. And the state's uh, solid waste working group has reported out progress and released its initial report last fall. That group continues to look at things like education efforts, uh, disposal bans and infrastructure development, um, while the Department of Environmental Services is, is beefing up its solid waste resources and staffing.
0: Now, I want to turn to one more story before we end the recap today. Salmon populations in New Hampshire lakes are declining. We've heard some news about that this week. The species is struggling to survive in landlocked areas. Mara, why is that? What's happening there?
1: Yeah. So inland salmon, the salmon that live in lakes, aren't native to New Hampshire, but they've been managed here for a long time for sport fishing. At one point, their population was so big that the state and the Boy Scouts started a fishing derby in Lake Winnipesaukee to help reduce the population. But over time, more people have been fishing. Um, There've been some changes to the fish hatchery system, and there've been environmental changes like lakes getting warmer and more houses and lawns being developed near the water that have caused a decline in the inland salmon population, so the populations of older fish have started to plummet.
0: Now, what's the state doing about it? Are they stocking the lake? What are they? What are they doing about it?
1: Well, they do have a management program that includes, um, you know, hatching fish and, and, you know, stocking. But the state and the Boy Scouts of America, Daniel Webster Council, um, most recently have decided to stop that fishing derby on Lake Winnipesaukee next year to sort of protect the fish, reduce the fishing pressure. Um, And fish and game officials are tracking the salmon to see, you know, when it's safe to start up that competition again.
0: All right. Well, Mara and Hadley, what else I want before we leave, I want to ask you both what else you're working on right now. Any upcoming stories that you'd like to to kind of highlight for us. Mara, let's start with you.
1: Uh, yeah, so I'm working on a story. Um, looking back at this winter's heating season and people's experiences with fuel assistance programs. Um, we know it was a really expensive winter for lots of folks. So just looking back at that. Um, and I'm also excited to get out and do some reporting on how climate change is changing summers in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. you know, as we expect this this hot summer. So if you're seeing something, let me know, email me. M hoplamazian at NHPR.org.
0: Hadley, how about you? Quickly.
2: Yeah, I'm working on a story about how communities are looking at various mechanisms to more effectively fund um stormwater infrastructure amid climate change when we're seeing this increased rainfall, um you know, more extreme weather, and we have really old infrastructure here in New Hampshire. So right. that'll be very interesting.
0: All right, we'll be watching for that. The New Hampshire Bulletin's Barn Barndollar and NHPR's Marla Haplomazian. Thank you both for joining us this morning on the recap.
2: Thanks so much, Rick.
0: And if Thank you, you Rick. If you want to check out more of the New Hampshire News recap, You can find it wherever you find your podcasts. And we'll be here next Friday, of course, with a fresh recap. I'm Rick Hanley, and this is Morning Edition on NHPR.